I'm Scott Paul, and this is the Manufacturing Report. At the end of the day, each worker, each person in this country that works for a living is having their tax money in this bill, that if we could put it back into the company and back into the hands of those that are making these products and have these products used, it's a win-win. President Biden, together with a bipartisan group of members of Congress, have an ambitious bill that would invest $1.2 trillion into the rebuilding of bridges, schools, roads, electric grids, and so much more, while employing millions of workers. After years of waiting for serious infrastructure investment, it's well past time for the rubber to meet the road. Today, I speak with three individuals who share how the historic infrastructure bill would impact their communities. United Steelworkers District 9 Assistant Director Mark Cochran, United Steelworkers Local 1066 President Mark Lash, and finally the CEO of a third-generation Pennsylvania company with a long history in public works projects. First, my conversation with Mark Cochran. That's next on the Manufacturing Report. I'm honored to be joined by Mark Cochran. Mark is the Assistant Director of the Steelworkers District 9, which includes seven southeastern states in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Mark, welcome to the Manufacturing Report podcast. Hey, thank you, and I'm glad to be here and glad to be participating on behalf of our uh, members in District 9. Well, we're grateful for all the work that you do. First, could you let our listeners know a bit about the types of factories, facilities that uh, you have in District 9? Because I think it's interesting, very diverse set of manufacturing, uh, and it kind of underscores the link, I think, between some of this economic activity, manufacturing, and infrastructure. But why don't you share with our listeners uh, a bit about what some of the major industries you have there? I'd be more than happy to. District 9 is a southeastern United States, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, and the Virgin Islands, St. John, St. Croix, and St. Thomas. And in District 9, we're blessed to have a lot of inner waterways. Other means of paper production is the largest sector in District 9. And if most people don't know that uh, to have a, a paper mill, you've got to have water. You got to have that resource, so we're blessed here to have have the large portion of our district, and uh, and quite frankly, a large portion of our international union is uh, the paper sector. And in those paper sectors, it is divided between uh, white and brown, which is white is bleached uh, paper and white roll finished goods, and then the brown is uh, corrugated box box plants, uh, the converters for those. Uh, that that goes along in District 9 along uh, with different packaging and, and all that. Uh, it goes hand in hand. Away from the uh, paper mills, you'll have our uh, steel, steel manufacturing plants. Uh, we have several different. Uh, U.S. Steel is in uh, here in Fairfield. You know, they've got a big investment and we're happy for that and happy for the members that work out there and this uh, electric arc furnace. We have aluminum productions uh, all through uh, the district. Uh, one of the ones up in North Alabama being Constellium is a, a large metal aluminum producer. And uh, from that, we go to a traffic signage, uh, road striping, transportation things, and uh, 
over in the uh, north uh, west corner of Alabama uh, that, that will definitely be affected by if we can get a great infrastructure bill passed. We have cement. We have cement and concrete plants scattered throughout the Carolinas, throughout Alabama. We have just a plethora of different industries. We have people making the wire, extruding wire and power lines, and we have conduit makers. There is all kinds of infrastructure related, and I would be remiss to say maybe not for the infrastructure itself, but to get those goods where they're going to get our products that we manufacture out to the people that need them on the job when this infrastructure project starts. We have some of the largest tire facilities, rubber, in the, uh, in the country. We've got Goodyear, we have uh, BF Goodrich, uh, several, several tires that uh, are going to be needed to, uh, to support it. And also up in the Carolinas, uh, where we actually had a, the bus tour, we had the optical cable, which is Owens Corning, the fiber. Uh, that is an exciting, uh, exciting production. It'll be definitely needed to uh, enhance our broadband and uh, touches every aspect of life. Mark, thanks for that excellent overview of the types of manufacturing and and you know how it's connected to infrastructure. Both, you know, if there is an infrastructure investment, the kinds of activities that you could expect to see grow in some of these factories, but also how infrastructure is part of the competitiveness picture for keeping still workers working in these facilities as well and getting goods to and from uh, from the factory to the market or up and down the supply chain. I know that there's a conversation right now about uh, about infrastructure. And in Washington, we're hoping to get a, a big investment across the finish line. And you know, you mentioned you're in the Southeast, you have some red states, you have some blue states and purple states, but infrastructure isn't Republican or Democratic. So I'm wondering if your members have expressed to you kind of what they see as being at stake here too, both in their own communities and why there's this urgent need to invest. I mean, what have been some of the consequences of underinvestment in infrastructure over the last couple of decades? We're underperforming in, in our district on the overall scorecard, if you will, of the uh, U.S. infrastructure. I believe that a uh, C or a C minus is as high, given the grading points for the infrastructure project, as anybody in the nation. So, with that, you know, our our commitment to serving the people that buy from our manufacturers. I mean, you you always got to take in consideration the bridges, the dams, everything that goes into the resources needed for our manufacturers to survive. And quite frankly, the lack of infrastructure in the South at one time and then still somewhat prevalent in some areas is actually cost, um, cost some of our members to get uh, capital investments because they wasn't located close enough to a, a better access point, if you will. So an infrastructure bill in District 9 will be very beneficial because we look to expand, we look to grow. And if, if we could get in this infrastructure bill and get where our people can make their product, it's been proven time and time again 
that the union product is the best product you can buy. So we're excited, hoping that we can get this thing across the finish line and start upgrading so we can see our products, our workforce, and the people they work for prosper by the investment in their future. I appreciate that, Mark. And I had one follow-up question about infrastructure, and it's about the importance of uh, having a Buy America requirement, particularly as we're looking at new kinds of infrastructure. You mentioned the fiber optic cable the workers produce in North Carolina as being a way to expand broadband internet to underserved areas right now, both urban and rural all over the country. You know, there's heavily subsidized producers of that in China, also in steel and aluminum and uh, iron and all the products that your members make, basically. Um, And so talk to me about the importance of having the Buy America as a requirement for those public dollars and the kind of difference that could make for your members in District 9. Absolutely. We're the one financing, all of us, you, me, and every member in District 9. We're the one financing this. It's coming off of our tax dollars. We're the one work here. We buy here. We play here. We live here. And our people deserve to have their tax money put back into the economy. If we make it in America, it should be used by our government. We should not be going out seeking the subsidized Chinese, Korean, you name it, the cheapest brought in, not the quality, not the durability, but the price tag. It's our people that work day and night, shift work, 12 hours a day, stays away from their family, and tries to put food on the table for their children to have their tax dollars shipped out to a product that they make here at home that our government is bringing in is unacceptable. At the end of the day, each worker, each person in this country that works for a living is having their tax money in this bill, that if we could put it back into the company and back into the hands of those that are making these products and have these products used, it's a win-win. It it would be a great benefit to all of our, our workforce. I have to obviously agree with that. And I think that the very good news is that I think this this administration understands this. And this isn't a partisan statement because I think the Trump administration did some work in, in Buy America as well. But beyond that, you know, I'm wondering uh, how important you think this infrastructure investment is at this point in time. And I'm going to set up the question this way. You know, we're we're in a pandemic. Uh, we've been in it for 18 months. It's obviously roiled the economy. It's also shown the weakness of our supply chains in the United States and how we're just way too dependent on uh, on other countries for some stuff, along with the fact, Mark, that we still have these severe weather events that are coming in. I know they've battered the, the Southeast United States. Um, but for those who say we, you know, we've already spent enough money, we can't afford to do an infrastructure investment. You know, what do you say to them? How do what, what do you, you know, but with both the experience from the pandemic and kind of these weather events, what kind of pushback would you provide to folks who say we can't afford to do this right now? We can't afford not to do this right now. That is that's the key. We can't afford. We've already been shown by history, by the pandemic, by all the. Uh, Uh, current climate change events, weather events, uh, that we're not ready. We're not ready to weather that storm. 
with with the infrastructure change, just think of all the hospitals that we have now, the technology that's in those. If we broadened ourselves, if we invested, there's doctors doing surgeries, there's doctors doing all kinds of research that would get to these rural communities, to these underserved communities, and even to the point of where we're at now that that medicine would change, not to mention all the stuff that we could build inside this country and we produce in this country that would actually go hand in hand with the other casualties we deal with, being able to react faster, being here and being able to keep products in 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 our hands within grasp and having it readily available when tragedy strikes. It would mean great. I would I would argue and and anyone would be able to see that we need that in infrastructure bill now and uh there's not an argument against it. You know, I'm a buy American, buy union guy. I've always felt like if we don't see to our own, then eventually our own won't be here. And uh I just wish and hope that our uh, Congress will come together and start taking care of the working people in this country. We are the tax base and uh, we are the people who provide the opportunities. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Always a good day to talk about our members, talk about our district and uh, really talk about successes that we have. Uh, the director always says that we are uh, we're easy to point out the uh, bad times, but we we're the kind of people that we just work and keep our nose working hard, and uh, we never highlight ourselves. And uh, really, our members and 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 our our workforce is uh, second to none globally. I'm pleased that Mark Lash, the uh, president of Steelworker Local 1066 in Gary, Indiana, has joined us on the podcast to talk a bit about the importance of infrastructure, the steel industry to that part of Indiana's economy. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem, Scott. So I, I want you to relay to us just in kind of simple terms how important the steel industry is to that part of Indiana. And so our audience knows, you know, Northwest Indiana, just across the line from Chicago and along Lake Michigan is the leading steel producing area in the United States of America and has been for at least 30 years. And so when some people say, oh, manufacturing's in the past, it's certainly not. And you see that every day with your members and in your communities and out in the economy. Is that right, Mark? Oh, absolutely. We uh, we kind of took the mantle for the largest steel producing region in the country. Uh, I, I want to say, like you said, around 30 years ago when it ceased to be the Pittsburgh area and became Northwest Indiana. Between all the small communities in this area, it makes up a pretty large area that really is almost like a suburb of Chicago in the state of Indiana. And the major, the biggest by far employer in this region is the steel industry. We've got along Lake Michigan, we've got coming from the Illinois side, we have the now BP refinery 
Um, and then just heading east from there, you've got the old Inland plant that is now Cleveland Cliffs. You've got the old LTV plant that is now Cleveland Cliffs. You've got U.S. Steel, which is still U.S. Steel, Gary Works. Then the old Republic plant that is now U.S. Steel. And then the old Bethlehem steel plant that is now part of Cleveland Cliffs. So this whole region, this whole lakefront is dominated by the steel industry. It's the region's largest employer by far. And for every one of those jobs in the mills, they create or support five additional jobs in the community. Because those paychecks are the ones that go to fuel our local economy here. Absolutely, Mark. So there's the direct jobs in the steel mills, and that's a sizable chunk of employment, as you indicated. What do you see in terms of like the indirect effects or, you know, when times are going well in the steel mills or when times aren't going well? What are things out in these communities? And I'm familiar with them because I grew up just south of there. But but what's it what's it like in uh, Merrillville or Lowell or uh, Michigan City when when times are great and and when times are not? The local economies ebb and flow with how the steel industry is functioning. I can tell you that, you know, recently I went out to our local mall and it was busy and and it hasn't been. You know, I mean, retail in general is is down with e-commerce and everything, but our local shopping mall was even, you know, more than you had a couple of the big flagship stores closed and you had, and you went there on a, on a Sunday, especially. And, you know, it just wasn't all that busy anymore. And a lot of empty stores and stuff. I went there recently on a Sunday afternoon and the place was packed and I'm like, well, what's going on? And then I, it hit me, you know, um, the steel companies just cut profit sharing checks the week before. They're doing well. They cut profit sharing checks, and that's reflected in the community around here uh, in the economic climate everywhere. I mean, it's that direct. A you can see the effects that quickly. I think that's a point worth emphasizing. I'm glad you did because it is a even though the steel industry, relative to the size of our economy is not as large as it was, it still plays an outsized impact because these are good middle-class jobs, and particularly for workers who are not able or don't want to get a four-year college degree. You're able to make a good living and also reinvest that money in your community. And, and I would say that, you know, it's kind of, now I don't, I'm not familiar with large-scale manufacturing outside of the steel industry, because that's what dominates this area. But uh, we've got, you know, in this area, it really is the last bastion for people who don't have a college degree, and even some who do, because the jobs are much more lucrative than they can find with some of their degrees, okay, unless they've got a professional degree. But it's the last bastion for those people to come, go to work, and have a job and an income with insurance, with union wages, with all of the things that that brings, and the ability to raise a family with one income. 
Yeah, yeah, and and to your point, Mark, there's just there's a lot of cases where both parents have to work more than one job just to try to make ends meet if they are in a low wage, low benefit type of occupation. So the the types of jobs that the steel industry is able to generate, and then obviously the steel workers helping to make them good jobs, uh, is simply irreplaceable, um, I think. And and so let's get a bit into the policy because it's not like the steel industry is, is not without challenges. I think it certainly uh, does have both challenges and opportunities right now. What, one of the things that is being discussed in Washington is this the, an investment in our nation's infrastructure, our physical infrastructure. And obviously, a lot of that is made out of steel, You know, whether it's bridges or, uh, or, or water pipes or, or what have you. Uh, even There's even tons of steel and solar panels and and, and wind turbines. So what would a big infrastructure investment mean, uh, both at the mill in terms of demand, but also just how would it improve, how would it improve the region? Because I know the region isn't without its uh, infrastructure challenges as well. It would be twofold. And, and I just want to comment that an infrastructure bill that doesn't include a provision where they have to use steel that's made in America really doesn't help as much as something that does. I mean, the current example, a recent example is in this area, just south of us, we've got a huge wind farm, okay, with huge windmills that's doing great things, but none of those windmills were produced with steel made in this country. So while the investment and the jobs is helping and the clean energy is helping, it really didn't help this area as much as it could have had those things been produced with steel made in the United States. Now, back to your original question, yes, if we had an infrastructure bill that required the the steel that was used in the improvements to be made in this country, then the help to Northwest Indiana would be twofold. Number one, it would provide for the local economy because I'm sure the mills here would have a large part in producing much of that steel. And then the infrastructure in Northwest Indiana is in dire need of improvement as well. And if we can get the money into the economy in making those improvements, putting people to work in construction and every other way, I mean, this, this economy here would be hitting on all cylinders. So, Mark, just in closing, I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, the steel industry, I mean, Gary is named after, a, you know, a steel magnet. The entire region is shaped by steel. What do you see ahead in the future, particularly as we enter this age of a clean energy economy? You spoke to this a bit already but how do you think the steel industry and you know the Gary Works in particular can be positioned to succeed uh, as we look ahead to the next generation of steel workers? Well, as far as what they're producing, I, I can tell you that Gary Works, um, U.S. Steel in particular, is always trying to innovate and make steel stronger and thinner, um, high-strength things for automotives, for cars. So they can be both stronger, more crash resistant, and um, lighter, more fuel efficient. 
Um, and as we transition to electric vehicles in the future, there's still a substantial portion of a car or anything else that's made from steel. Um, and as we talked about earlier, wind turbines, um, there's a substantial amount of steel and solar panels. There is, there's, there's a future for the steel industry in a clean energy economy. It's just going to take some innovation into tailoring the steel to meet the needs of what, ha what it's going to be applied to. Another example is steels in what we call motor lamb for uh, electric motors. You know, there's always innovations happening, and we try and stay ahead of those to where we can produce those grades of steel that may be evolving and are necessary in the technology of tomorrow. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We're grateful for your time uh, and for your energy in leading steelworkers in Northwest Indiana. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. And I'm now joined by Alex Paris, who is the CEO of Alex Paris Contracting, a third-generation company in Western Pennsylvania, uh, deeply engaged in infrastructure-related work. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Before we get into the actual questions about infrastructure, can you tell us a little bit about the history of your company, which I think is a, is, is a fascinating one, and your connection to some big projects in, in Western Pennsylvania as well. Yeah, my grandfather started the company in 1928. He was an Italian immigrant who came here actually by default when he was 14 years old. His parents had bought a ticket for his older brother to come to the United States, and he got drafted into the, to the Italian army, which ultimately was the beginning of World War I. And my grandfather, because they had paid money for the ticket, had to come by himself when he was 14 years old to the United States. So he did, and he found his way to the Vela PA, which is near where our offices are at. And he uh, went to work in a coal mine, and he worked in there for about 10 years and decided he wanted to go back to Italy. And when he was on his way back to Italy, right here where our offices were, there was a man running a steam shovel. And he was waiting for the train to take him to Pittsburgh, what it would took him to New York and then to get on a boat to go to Italy. But he was so engaged with watching the steam shovel that he missed his train. And the guy finally asked him if he wanted to run it, learn to run it, and if he wanted a job. So he ended up having a job doing that. And three or four years later, he bought a truck and then he bought the steam shovel and he went into business for himself. And he was in the coal business for a long time. That's how the company started. We transitioned to my dad running the company, and we went into primarily infrastructure work. We do a variety of things today, paving, excavating, infrastructure work, gas transmission, gas distribution, midstream, oil and gas related work. So we do a bunch of stuff. But all of it revolves around primarily, primarily construction under the ground or within building sites or roads. So we've seen the infrastructure in America be neglected for so long that it's, it's a great shame, I should say, is the best way to put it. I've been running the company since 1989. My oldest son joined the company full-time three years ago. So we're going into our fourth generation. 
And there's a lot of challenges today, you know, in the world. Uh, there's a lot of challenges in the United States, uh, a lot of issues with a lot of different things, and it's challenging every day. And, you know, one thing about infrastructure, and I know we're going to get into specific questions, especially underground piping, water pipes, wastewater pipes, stormwater, nobody sees them and they get neglected the most. And then the next thing is roads. They see them, but they usually don't get taken care of until they start to fall apart. And on those roads, you've got bridges. So there's a lot of things going on in the United States that have progressively gotten worse that the general public really doesn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to make sure our audience knows this isn't just Alex stating this because he's in the infrastructure construction business. This is what the American Society of Civil Engineers say, too. Or if you open your eyes, what you see in your communities, that there are tens of thousands of deficient bridges. There are a lot of roads in desperate need of repair. And then just in terms of waterworks investments, uh, you know, people are obviously familiar with Flint, but that is the tip of the ice uh, in terms of the work that we need to do. And so you've seen this firsthand, and I'm wondering what all the uncertainty about big investments in infrastructure over the last you know, decade or more has meant for you and your employees. How has it impacted your company? And I know that you provide good union United Steelworker jobs as well, Alex. Yeah, I, and I could tell you this, you know, we're living in Western Pennsylvania, or we our base is in Western Pennsylvania. We work in the Mid-Atlantic region. You know, 2008, 2009, when the country kind of fell apart because of the housing bust and the markets falling apart. And we were very fortunate because we were primarily doing 70% of our work was primary public works projects. And most of those public works projects are funded pretty much 100% by government funding, a lot of it starting at the federal level. So we were in a good position here because that time the Marcello Shell gas play was occurring in our area. So we were already doing gas work. So as that public funding was kind of falling away, we were able to transition and keep people working. And as you said, we're a union shop, United Steelworkers, a construction local. People usually don't think of, of steelworkers as construction people, but there are locals throughout specifically the Northeast that do construction work. I think we're probably the oldest one in the state of Pennsylvania right now with an agreement with the United Steelworkers. You know, so we were able to transition. My point of that is that public works money has always been on a shortfall, probably since the early 70s. You mentioned bridges, roadways, you know, at one time, our little town here in the late 70s could have got 95% EPA funding to put in sewer mains. Today, they're lucky if they get 5% from any sort of federal grant or federal funding source. Wow. So I've been involved with several national and state contractors association. I've been to D.C. many times lobbying for infrastructure. And, and, you know, like I said, we do a lot of water and sewer work, not only water and sewer, but highway bridges, been down there and lobbied for that stuff for years. And it's really frustrating because what happens with infrastructure is there's not a politician in the United States that's going to stand up and say, hey, we don't need to take care of water lines. We don't need to take care of sewer lines. 
We don't need to take care of bridges. We don't need to take care of highways. We don't need to take care of dams. There's not a politician in the world will say that because everybody, no matter if you're far right, far left, in the middle, needs all those services. But what happens is infrastructure always takes a back seat to some other deal they're going to cut on something else that they want to fund. So it always ends up on the short stick. We'll start out with a bill that's going to put $90 billion into clean water funding. Well, by the time they take everything out and they piece it up and they send this bill, send this amount of money for, you know, a national park out west or some other project, it always gets a second seat. I wanted to follow up with with one question because I, I have seen this as well, is that when you talk about investing in infrastructure, roads, bridges, water, it's like mom and apple pie. I mean, Democratic, Republican, independent voters all overwhelmingly support it. You're also right that any, any elected official uh, from the municipal level on up to the president, they're obviously going to say that they're for this. But to me, it takes leadership and it takes investing political capital. Uh, and it does seem like the stars are pretty much aligned uh, on this because you do have a president who wants to get something over the finish line. Uh, you have a bipartisan group in the Senate. Uh, and then I, I do think you have the House of Representatives too that want to see an ambitious infrastructure bill passed. And so I'm wondering, because you've been working this issue for so long, you know, what dynamic do you think has been important uh, over the last year or so in getting us honestly closer than we've been in a long time to getting that durable, sizable investment uh, that we need to make up for lost time here? Well, I think, you know, beyond the obvious of COVID and rebuilding, trying to get the country moving, that's a given, that's a motivation piece. But I also think, I think a couple factors. First of all, as bad as the situation was in Flint, Michigan, I think it started to open people's eyes, including politicians, as to what can happen if you have infrastructure that is not up to speed and you're not, for the lack of word, maintaining what you have and you're not looking proactively at things like lead pipe service replacement. 6.1 million people in America still have lead services going to their residence. And that's a conservative estimate. So I think there's been more awareness about infrastructure. I think the bridge that collapsed in Minneapolis, that's probably been 10 years ago now, brought bridges to the forefront. I know here in the state of Pennsylvania, PennDOT for the last five or six years has been on a massive bridge rebuilding program. And I think that awareness coupled with the need for infrastructure overall, and as you said, there's not a politician that doesn't think it's a good thing. And I think that the other thing that happens is, you know, it creates a lot of jobs real quick. So I think that's changed. I think that it's something that is reluctant and headstrong locked Congress has been on all sides of it. They all realize that the American public is not happy about them being locked into this battle and that they have to come out with something that's a win for everybody. And it's the easiest thing to be a win for everybody. That's probably the crux of what's driving. 
I think they're getting lobbied a lot more for it. I think a lot more people and health people are starting to look at and realize, you know, this is a big deal. So in practical terms, uh, if we do get this broad new investment in infrastructure that includes water and sewers, roads, bridges, you know, possibly some school construction, some things with with respect to the energy grid, uh, clean energy infrastructure, broadband, what does that mean in practical terms for you and your employees? Will you need to bring more people on and do you stand ready to help rebuild? Oh yeah, that yeah, definitely we'll bring more people on and actually we've been in a slump lately because like I said, everything we're doing right now in the last year has been slowed up. I mean, oil and gas has slowed up. Infrastructure, though we've seen some nice sized projects come out in the last year, there's not many of them. There's less than there there's less than normal. So yes, we're, we stand ready to build more faster. We will employ people faster. And, and, you know, it's hard to find people both skilled and unskilled anymore. But, you know, we've done a lot of internal training. We work with the steel workers with their apprenticeship program on training. There's an opportunity today, I think, more than ever to put people to work if we can get this bill passed, because there's so much that needs done. You know, at our peak, we're employing 500 plus people. We're down right now because we are slow some. But, you know, I'd like to be up above that 500 doing this work and employees. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully within the, by Thanksgiving, we can have something. Here, here. Thanksgiving Day with uh, a toast to new infrastructure. That sounds good to me, Alex. Yeah, um, that, me too. Alex Paris, thank you so much for joining us on the Manufacturing Report. Thanks for having me, and I appreciate the time speaking to you. And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. By the way, if you're interested in learning even more about infrastructure, please take a listen to my recent interview with National Skills Coalition CEO Andy Van Clunen about workforce development and rebuilding America. You can find it in our other podcast episodes at AmericanManufacturing.org slash podcast. As always, I want to thank AAM staff and Kat Adams in particular for their work to make this episode possible. And I also want to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Please be sure to subscribe to the Manufacturing Report on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts and let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review and a rating. You can find us online at AmericanManufacturing.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can connect with us on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. I'm Scott Paul, and until next time, together, we can keep it made in America.